HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm Brian Kenny, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, they've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Catherine Pickley and John Nihul from MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn, New York. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Catherine and John about chicken, what's new at MOFAD, and we'll score a double. Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As regular listeners know, we launch each episode with an inspiration from Julia. As we talked about many times, Julia was a big advocate for and practitioner of lifelong learning. In that spirit, when questions come up about our food system, it means that we want to dig deeper and ask the experts. Where does this food come from? How did we get here? And critically, does how we're doing things now still make any sense? The other day, I was talking to my mother-in-law, culinary historian and cookbook author Anne Willen, and she said, you know, when I was a kid... Chicken was a special occasion meal, not everyday food. She grew up in the northern English countryside during World War II and its aftermath. And all of this really surprised me. I had not thought about it before. When I was a kid, chickens were everywhere. I'd even spent time on a farm where they and their droppings were literally everywhere. I had to know, when did the everyday chicken we've come to take for granted transform itself from a rare treat 
to so ordinary that I rarely order it on a restroom menu because I can easily make it at home. This seemed to require a Julia order investigation. As luck would have it, the foundation has recently supported the collection at MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn, New York, and that project was focused on the history of the chicken. MOFAD is a large-scale food museum that explores the culture, history, science, production, and commerce of food and drink. And through its interactive exhibitions and public programming, it strives to inspire day-to-day curiosity about what we eat and why we eat it. Exactly the people who can answer a Julia-style big food question. Our guests today are MOFAD's curator, Catherine Pickley, and curatorial associate, John Nihul. They're joining us today to talk turkey about, well, chicken. Let's find out just how did the chicken go from exotic to commonplace. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine and John. Thanks so much for having us, Todd. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Well, we're glad you could be here to, to tell us about MOFAD and s- shed some light on the history of chicken. And I'll just give the caveat with that uh, boisterous introduction. Um, neither Catherine or John are all out chicken historians, but through their work at MOFAD have, have done some, I think, insightful and accessible uh, research into this. So before we get into chicken, just tell us, I, I, I gave this sort of boilerplate about MOFAD, but tell us what people really should understand about what MOFAD is, where it came from, what it's doing. Catherine, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, at MOFAD, we believe that food is culture, and really everything that we do um, at the museum, whether that's exhibitions, public programming, or bringing school groups through, um, highlights that fact. We use food as a lens, food and drink, I should say, as a lens to think about uh, the wider world around us. So when we talk about chickens, we're not just talking about um, history and anatomy um, and biology, but we're using that as a lens to talk about a broader issues like the issues of meat or industrialization things like that got it Uh, john did you want to add anything from your perspective about you know maybe even elaborate on what Catherine said about looking at food as culture and how that relates to museum and history yeah i mean it's you know as we love to use the term lens uh when talking about food and culture at the museum but I mean, just to kind of dovetail off the chickens a little bit more, I mean, how it even, you know, can talk about immigrant rights, um, genetically modified foods, you know, whether it's, you know, us breeding chickens a certain way to get them to achieve a certain weight or lay a certain amount of eggs every year, or even, you know, what goes into producing the grain or the feed for them. It's really just a way to look at a plethora of different things, you know, also farming and agriculture at large, um, the way they work within these large vertically integrated farm systems or the way independent farmers run, you know, in relation to, uh, into that, it's just a great way to look at everything. Right. We, um, everybody eats, right. Everybody eats and drinks multiple times a day. And it's something that oftentimes we do without thinking about it. Um, or questioning, you know, where did this come from? Why are we eating it? Um, what do we like about it? And and we take those topics, right? Food is really sort of an invisible everyday topic and really expand upon them and, and ask the tough questions around food and drink and culture, why we like what we do. 
Got it. And and Catherine, t- tell us more about specifically what your your role is. And it, it, I think many people do know what a curator is, but what specifically is a curator at MoFan? Sure. Um, we're a very small team. My job really is to oversee all of our mission-based work. So um, from the exhibitions, which John and I work very closely on, um, to making sure our public programming is on brand and on message for us um, and guiding our education team while they're bringing through school groups and working with kids in the neighborhood. Um, so that's sort of the overarching picture of what I do. Of course, um, as curator, a big part of my job is thinking about our collections, um, what we can add to to uh, the things that we own at the museum and can display at the museum to help tell a lot of these really great stories around food and drink. And John, is, is your role quite similar or can you expand on, on what you do? It's pretty similar. I help Catherine in sort of the day-to-day activities of exhibition research and design. I also um, take care of the collections, all the objects that we have there. I maintain them, make sure they're up to standards, don't get damaged, you know, that we keep uh, that sort of level of professional care and preserving them for future generations as that's sort of our overall larger goal as a museum. And then uh, some day-to-day handiwork every once in a while as well. John is also our resident expert on like chefs and all of the cool things that that are going on in the food world, um, which is really great for us because we partner with people, those people every day. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good resource to know about too. We might, we might tap that later on either in the podcast or, or just in the year. Yeah. Please let me know. So tell us, so why did MOFAD decide to put chickens in the spotlight? Yeah, we were um, thinking about lots of different shows that we could do in our current space. MOFAD Lab is just south of McCarran Park. Um, Our whole space is about 5,000 square feet. Maybe half of that is dedicated to exhibitions. So we have one large exhibition at a time and then some smaller gallery space that we have items from our collection. And we were trying to think of what would be really interesting back there. We have, you know, crazy brainstorming sessions with our exhibition team, um, Dave Arnold, the museum's founder, and Peter Kim, the executive director, on that with us. And um, we started talking about how we could tackle meat um, and how we could use taxidermy in the museum. And, you know, can we get a pig? Can we get a cow? Well, we can't show the breadth of breeding for agricultural purposes. Um, And then it sort of came to us. Well, the chicken, right? Uh, They're small, so you can show several of them, many of them. I think we have 17 on display right now. Um, So you can show that breadth of breeding. Um, But also, they were the first uh, meat animal to be industrialized and all of the things that go along with that. Uh, vertical integration, as John was saying, um, impact on the environment, on farming, on rural communities. And it was just a great way to tell that overall story, but also this really interesting story um, of the sort of design and redesign of the chicken over thousands and thousands of years and our relationship, humans' relationship with chickens, which is really, really fascinating. Okay, I'm sure everyone's still stuck back on their wait. Seventeen taxidermy chickens. <laughs> I mean, I think you know you you kind of. I don't even know if even with natural history museums, everyone knows about those dioramas, but you don't think about taxidermy so much. So I don't know, John. Do you want to take that of? So why are there seventeen taxidermy <laughs> chickens in the museum, and and what is that like, and what do they cover? They cover. Chickens from just about all the ages, in a sense. I mean, we don't have the sort of progenitor of the the chicken, the 
Red Jungle Fowl, which would uh, be great. And we're still looking to get that. But, you know, everything from the contemporary white leghorn, which is a industrial egg-laying chicken, to the I Am Samani, which a lot of people call the sort of death metal chicken because of its fantastic black plumage and its skin and meat and everything underneath are completely black as well. We have a English, an old English game fowl, which is a... Uh, was one of the sort of popular fighting chickens back at the time. Cockfighting was, I mean, we'll get into that soon, but one of the ways that chickens sort of proliferated around the world. Um, we have these tiny little black and white silkies, um, which are just like these little cute little fuzzballs um, that are also completely black underneath. And it just really shows the entire spectrum, you know, that even though all the chickens come descend from the red jungle fowl, Gallus gallus domesticus, they all look so different in shapes and sizes and plumage and colors. And, you know, some chickens have little feathers over their toes. Some of them lay blue eggs, some lay brown eggs, some lay white eggs. Um, it's just really fascinating to see what, you know, such what we think of as such a, you know, one common animal is really so diverse. Right. It's the same. I mean, I think people are used to seeing, you know, different types of breeds of dogs and cats. But, you know, when you go into a supermarket, you don't see a chicken, right? You see a boneless, skinless breast or you see a leg or a thigh or whatever wings. But you're not, you know, and you see these images, these beautiful pastoral images of like, you know, chickens in a field. But what does a chicken actually look like? And how many different, you know, how can we see that through all of these different kinds of chickens that exist all over the world on almost every continent. And what's the public reaction been when they're sort of encountering, because I, I think they're they're not actually like enclosed behind glass, right? So you're not meant to touch them, but in theory, what's what, what have people said? Have people really liked it or they found it off-putting or surprising? People do uh, like to touch them or try to touch try them. To, yeah. um, definitely. Um, I, I understand that uh, impulse. Um, we've had good responses. I mean, I think we were potentially worried about uh, people reacting negatively, but they're so beautiful and so dynamic. We worked with a really talented um, taxidermist. You know, they're not in a they're not in a museum diorama. They're not um, laid out in a museum drawer. They're posed very uniquely. They kind of look at one another. You know, they all have their own personalities. And, and mm -hmm. I think people look at them and I don't, maybe relate is a very strong <laughs> word to use. Um, but, you know, Identify. Pe I you know, people look at them and they see that, that character and I think they really enjoy it. We have a lot of people taking selfies with the chickens. Um, you know, they're just, yeah, they're, their characters. We also went through a lot of trouble to, I guess, carefully source these chickens. Yes. Um, so we have signs around the chickens, you know, no chickens were harmed in the making of this exhibition. All the chickens that we got taxidermied were um, chickens that died of natural causes that, you know, our taxidermists had reached out to a bunch of different poultry farmers around the country and, you know, asked them, you know, if one passes away of natural causes, if you could just freeze it and then uh, mail it my way, that would be great. So no chickens harmed for for our exhibition, which was good. Absolutely. Well, I'm obsessed with this idea of the all black down to black meat chicken. And are there people actually, are there black meat chicken farmers or those chickens are used for a different purpose? So the I am Samanis, at least in the US, are still such a small breed that the breeders are more just breeding them as show chickens and to have around and try and repopularize them. But uh, when it comes to the silkies, those are very prominently featured in Chinese cuisine, especially uh, for making the base of chicken soups. So those are actively bred for that purpose, but the I am Samani is still a little bit, a uh, little bit niche. 
Right. The silky um, is a very important part of Chinese cuisine and sort of food as medicine in terms of, you know, chicken soup and things like that. Um, it has uh, um, an amino acid that's really good for you that I can't remember the name of right now. <laughs> and and I'm quite tempted to go down the road of show chickens, but I think maybe maybe we'll we'll loop back to that to just talk about, I think, which is kind of the fascinating, most important part of what um, I assume came out of your research and putting this together, which is how did the chicken become such a commonplace animal and food and what changed in the world to take them, as you were mentioning, out of the jungle and out of being sort of a, a, um, a, a gaming in, in a different sense animal to become a food source. What, what, what was that evolution? Can you take it, take us through that a, a bit briefly? Sure, I'll start here. Um, so the chicken was domesticated sometime around 8,000 to 7,500 BCE um, in the jungles of Southeast Asia, uh, probably for uh, sport, for cockfighting as part of um, religious or ritual practice. Um, and, and from there spread across the world. You know, part of the reason that we chose chickens to show in our museum is that they were small, right? But the fact that they're small and portable, you know, easily movable helps with this spread across the world. I think it's something by like the 17th century. There are chickens um, in almost every continent, almost every corner of the world. Um, so that that is really fascinating but you know especially during you know if you think about american history during colonial times the chickens weren't you know that important right they weren't listed on registers for um you know farm registers right so you would have a an inventory of your larger game animals but not of your chickens right they were often mm. taking care of the chickens was often relegated to women um or to slaves um and so they weren't seen as very important. It was a way to get eggs. Um, you might not eat it very often. I'll let John take it from here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chickens were first believed to be first domesticated in around 7,500 BCE. And then we know that they made it to Egypt by about 1500 BCE to Greece by about 800 BCE. And then we know they made it as far North as England by the time Julius Caesar was in power. He not sure why, but outlawed um, the eating of chickens. But uh, so, yeah, that was kind of their, rapid uh rapid spread around europe and then came over um 1491 or 92 um to the americas with that first sort of a european expedition out here so that brings us sort of through the 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 back history but then even up to the point of the american revolution there's a big difference between right the cultivation of, of chickens for for eggs and for food was still miles off from sort of what happened uh, later right Right. Um, so what an interesting thing that happened in the 19th century was uh, sort of with this newfound or, you know, better trading relations with China, a lot of, I guess, what they thought at the time were really interesting chicken breeds started making their way into Europe and into the Americas. And of particular interest was the Koshin chicken and the Brahma, which Queen Victoria ended up loving and started avidly collecting all these different chicken breeds. And that's really where you see this proliferation of different chicken breeds in the 1800s, um, going from, you know, just a handful of breeds to you know, low hundreds. I mean, even a little higher than that, but um, just kind of everywhere. And uh, then you start seeing, you know, chicken breeding exhibitions. Um, the first one in the U.S. was in the 1840s in Boston. 
there were a thousand different chickens on view and attendance surprisingly was fantastic. There were like mm-hmm. 10,000 people who went to go see it. So it was a real big success and it just kind of took off from there here in the, here in the U.S. Yeah, this phenomenon uh, that sort of happens in the 1850s to 1900 is called hen fever. It's sort of like the tulip craze, right? The Dutch tulip craze. Mm-hmm. Um Harold McGee says it's, you know, the time, this 50-year period, in this 50-year period, uh, the genetics of the chicken change like crazy, right? Um, Because you're having all of this breeding, all of this intermixing of these different sort of chicken lines. Um, And so the chicken has basically been the same thing for, you know, thousands of years. And then all of a sudden we have all of these different breeds of chickens um, in this this time period. Um, And I think... I don't know for certain, but I would imagine that, you know, this show chicken sort of dates back to this time. Um, People were really obsessed with chickens, how they looked, uh, how they ate, the sort of eggs they were laying. Um, And I think that probably laid the groundwork for um, the industrialization that happens in the 1900s. So is the henny, what I would call the henny penny chicken of the barnyard, you know, that you might see in children's books that is... um, you know, kind of um, different shades of brown with maybe a red comb and a, a beak, or maybe that would be the rooster with the comb, but that kind of pastoral image of, of a sort of barnyard chicken, is that chicken likely a hybrid fr- that was made during the hen fever period? Uh, potentially, right? That was, you're probably describing like a Dominique or a barred Plymouth rock. A very interesting thing about uh, the way that we've bred chickens with industrialization is that so initially, right, your chickens, they're not that big a deal, right? They're outside, they're hanging out in the pasture, um, but they're also, that means that they're um, uh, they could easily succumb to prey, right? Um, because they're mm. just out outside, um, which is why they have why people were breeding uh, for this sort of like mottled or speckled appearance, um, so that the chickens could easily, you know, cover themselves if necessary. Um, and with industrialization, right, uh, we breed chickens to be white, so that they're all they all look the same. You know, you don't have a dark pin feather when you're. Uh, eating it after it gets plucked yeah yeah yeah, after after plucking yes (laughs) so so take us to that because yeah then my image in my head which i imagine is most people's image of sort of um chickens that end up in the grocery store is is the white chicken of all white feathers so how did we go from all these different breeds to this sort of singular thing take us through that We, we were talking about the chicken in part as it became this major food source and that was really through back to what my mother in law was saying, that transformation from something you have around the barnyard in small numbers, mostly for eggs and the occasional meal, to a major protein source. So what what happened? Yeah, so the current chicken, you know, that we see on the supermarket shelves is a cross between a white Cornish and a white Plymouth rock. That chicken now um it's called a feed conversion ratio. So basically how much you feed it and how much weight you finally get out of it at the end of the production line for um, a four pound to get a four pound bird, you have to feed them eight pounds of feed. And that only happens now in six weeks. Whereas in 1925, they needed 19 pounds of food and 28 weeks to get to the same weight. So large uh, commercial chains wanted to find a way to get more bang for their buck and sort of breed this, um, this kind monster of perf- chicken. Yes, monster chicken. <laughs> and if you come to the museum and see the chickens, we have a white leghorn, which is a contemporary industrial egg layer. 
and that chicken is gigantic in comparison to all these sort of, you know, quote-unquote more traditional breeds. But um, what happened in the 1942 A&P supermarkets at the time launched uh, this contest for the chicken of tomorrow is what they called it. And they contacted all the sort of chicken farmers around the country and sent them a wax model of a plucked chicken at the end with these what they wanted to see as a sort of ideal chicken, which is really what we're familiar with today. Big, plump, white breasts, smaller, dark white meat, um, and just sort of that look. And so that spurred this race for farmers to start breeding to try and achieve this chicken. And then I think uh, the chicken sort of contest was held in 1947, was the first round, and they did another one in the early 1950s. And that is what resulted in the chicken that we're eating now, essentially, was this sort of intense breeding um, to achieve you know this uh, quote-unquote perfect chicken all right well we're good we're gonna pause there and we're gonna come back to talk to more about that the fact that we're eating monster chickens mm. these days and um Catherine and john are going to tell us more about the history of the chicken and how we got to monster chickens mm. and also uh then we'll pivot to more about what's coming up at mofan so do you have strong feelings about eating chicken i bet you do Maybe you raise your own in an urban garden, or you no longer eat mass-produced chicken. Let us know. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Catherine Pickley, curator, and John Nihul, curatorial associate at MOFAD, a museum of food and drink in Brooklyn, about the fascinating history of the chicken, as well as what's on at MOFAD right now. All right, so we were just getting to the point where A&P has launched this, what is now kind of a monster white chicken compared to where chicken started way in the jungle of uh, Southeast Asia. So Catherine and, and John, let's talk a little bit more about how modern chicken production came into being and for maybe all the criticism it getting now, at the time, it was kind of a marvel of scientific and technical advancement. So can you tell us more about how that came about? Sure. I mean, I think it's important to point out, right, that like people in different points of time in history are like want different things, right? So part of the impetus behind, you know, creating a as I've been calling it, the monster chicken, um, is is to be able to write like make affordable meat readily available to people. Right at that time, uh, you know, cow and pig production that's still like a lot of work to do. Right, those are still going to be uh, more expensive meat. You know, the chicken was more expensive to this point, but this is really the turning point where you know chicken sort of becomes 
this cheap meat, right? And and despite industrialization, right? Like what can be bad about making protein readily available to people? Um, so that's really the impetus behind this. Um, and, and yeah, there's this race that continues to this day to create um, a chicken that grows faster, that eats less feed, right? Like how can we um, make this system as efficient as possible, right? And this is where vertical integration comes in. You know, you have Tyson really, John Tyson really starts this <clears throat> trend of, you know, big chicken companies sort of like owning every piece of chicken production and contracting out to to farmers to to farm these chickens. Um, yeah. Yeah, just add to what Catherine just said, 97% of chicken farmers today are in that sort of vertically integrated chicken system. So it just goes to show how much of a control Tyson, Purdue, and now even Costco have on the industry. Costco is, I think, just finished their new plan out in Nebraska where they're going to be able to process 2 million chickens a week. And they're going to be getting it from uh, 100 different chicken farmers in the area. But that is an astonishing number when you think about it, just coming out of one plant, and that's not even going to cover half of Costco's need uh, chicken needs. Right, and I said this at the beginning, um, that chickens are important because they... They're the first meat animal um, to really be uh, heavily industrialized in this way, right? Like people think about cows and pigs in these um, CAFO situations, but that happened to chickens first, or that was done to chickens first. Um, and we're still seeing uh, uh, the effects of that. Um, also for chickens, chickens are the first uh, meat animals to really be sold by the piece. Um, which is really interesting. And not just by the piece, but think about all of the chicken products that exist, right? Chicken nuggets, um, chicken sausage, chicken bologna, right? Here's this one still small animal in comparison that makes all of these different products. Um, and I think that's sort of why people tend to not think about the chicken in the same way, right? Like cows and pigs, there are humane slaughter laws that exist for cows and pigs that don't exist for chickens. Um, so yeah, it's what we're trying to do is, is shine a light on, on our little chicken friends. Yeah. And, and so tell us a little bit about the invention of the boiler house and, and this, how did, is it, is it just the integration and moving things all together on a bigger scale or was there kind of a technical marvel that that's involved in 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 mass chicken production i there i mean it's one you know for protection of the animals um so you know as Catherine was saying when they're outdoors they're susceptible to different predators and things like that but now indoors no more of that it's also an easier way to sort of contain disease or sickness when it happens you know from jumping between kitchen or chickens at least here it's just confined to one of these sort of broiler houses rather than affecting the entire farm. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting to note that even though all those things were done to sort of make the system a little easier, they came up, you know, they added their own problems. Um, just the intense ammonia smell from all the, you know, chicken bodily waste, you know, um, bowel movements and all that kind of stuff make it really difficult to breathe. Um, chickens in those environments in such close quarters uh, can get very aggressive with one another. Um, so, you know, for instance, their beaks are the point of their beaks are removed, so they can't peck each other to death. Um, you know, if something were to were to happen, it's just uh, I don't know. 
it seems like it's making chicken industry a lot better, but then that brings its own problems. Right. When the um, outcome of the system is to get a lot of meat very quickly, um, that has to change the way that you're farming, right? You're not going to have a pasture full of, you know, speckled hens, you know, roaming and and scratching and um, and eating, right? You have to create a system that can be very efficient um, in order to create uh, that that outcome. And what should people understand too about when they talk about cageless or free range, which I think is more often applied to eggs than actual meat chicken, or if you are buying organic chicken in the grocery store, can you kind of shed some light on what the realities of that are? A little bit. Um, you know, uh, I haven't I haven't dug deep into my into my label laws recently, but um, you know, in order to be the last I understood, in order for something to be free range, it had to have access to outdoors. So that can mean you know, a door in the side of your broiler house um, that allows the chickens to go outside. Um, you know, but perhaps that door doesn't lead to a pasture, you know, what, what is outside that door? Why would a chicken go out that door when it's lived its life in a broiler house is, is a question. Um, yeah, cageless. Um, a lot of the layers, the laying hens uh, live in their lives in battery cages. Um, again, that's so that they don't necessarily uh, peck or hurt one another. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about cageless, they might be not in a cage, um, but still in a confined situation. Um, I know the uh, ASPCA, um, their sort of agricultural animal arm, has been working um, with some of these larger chicken producers to create um, environments. I can't remember what the term is, but to, to create like more uh, appropriate environments for for the chickens so that they're not necessarily confined in those in those same ways um, but yeah I mean this is my personal opinion but as as with all meat you know if you can uh, find a, a farmer that you trust um, maybe a farmer who's growing heritage breeds um, you know that that would be that would be the way to go and that you know, I know that's more expensive, but that also helps to eat less meat as well. Hmm. John, did you want to add anything to that? No, that's uh, pretty succinct for me. Yeah. Well, I think this is all touching upon what I wanted to also ask you about, kind of bringing it back into the context of the museum and what, what you guys do, is when we've t- you've touched on it a little bit, but maybe to draw it to a finer point. So by having the chickens in the museum and describing both their evolution and these elements of of mass chicken production. What's your hope of of what visitors take away from having seen 17 taxidermy chickens? You know, as with everything, we hope that people uh, leave the museum um, being able to make better choices um, about uh, what they're eating, um, and how they're interacting with the world. Um, not just in terms of of chickens, but even with our current exhibition on, on Chinese American restaurants, you know, how do you interact with those people at your local takeout place? Um, and, and so we want, yeah, we want people to, to stop and, and think about those things. Like I said, right, we eat and drink many times, times a day, uh, not necessarily without, with thinking, 
not necessarily, you know, while questioning, you know, why um, we're eating what we're eating. And so how does someone leave and say, go to the supermarket and say, oh, yeah, like maybe I won't get that or, oh, yeah, maybe I will eat that. Um, That's what we really hope, that people start to think about these things a lot more. Yeah, I mean, especially with a product like chicken, which is just so ubiquitous across this country. In the um, world. Yeah, in the world. But, you know, just in this country alone in 2015, every American ate about 90 pounds of chicken per person. That's 9 billion chickens. That's an astonishing figure, you know, and it's such a commonplace part of everyone's diet. So just in them coming to the museum and seeing these chickens and thinking about this in a new way, you know, that it's not just some white skinless breast and, you know, some crappy styrofoam packaging that there is so much more to this animal, you know, this food than, uh, than what we think. So we're just trying to, you know, share that knowledge. Well, I think it's, it's high time. All of us thought more about chickens. And I, I think it's such an interesting contrast because if you ask a huge number, particularly French chefs about, I, I'm not particularly interested in this, but a lot of people are obsessed with what, what, what's your last meal? If you, before you die, what do you want to be served? The, the answer so often is, oh, a good roast chicken. But I, but I think this conversation just made me think, oh, that could mean a million things. And probably it means a chicken from breast to a lot of French chefs. But um, it, it, it adds, adds new meaning to that thought for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So let's, let's switch gears and we'll move. Um, well, there, there's probably a pivot cause you were talking about Chinese mm-hmm. chicken soup, but tell us about your current exhibit. Ciao. Sure. Um, Chow making the Chinese American restaurant is, uh, really tells the story of, Chinese immigration and uh, U.S. immigration laws um, to to the U.S. Um, we take the Chinese American restaurant, of which there are about fifty thousand in the U.S., um, and ask like, why are there so many? Where did they come from? Um, and and we use once again, right, the t- Chinese takeout as a lens to look at really immigration law and what it means to be an American, what it means to um, to belong here. Um, so in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed, um, which functionally cuts off uh, immigration uh, from China into the U.S. Um, yet in 1900, the New York Times pronounces that uh, the city has gone chop suey mad, chop suey being one of the first Chinese-American dishes. Um, so how do these two things coexist, right? Um, how can we say to a group of people, um, you know, we don't want you here, while also saying, but we love your food? Um, I think this is a really important um, exhibition for a lot of the things that we're going through today in terms of uh, politics and, and rhetoric. And and like I said before, it's a way to get people, bring people in, right, with something that they know and love. Chinese-American food um, is probably just as American as anything else you could think of uh, at, that would be classified as American food, um, you know? And so it touches everybody's lives. Um, and yet it has this really incredible uh history 
to it um, that's really changed over time. Um, and, and as part of that, we have lots of really cool things that you get to see in the exhibition, including um, my favorite, which is a, a menu wall. Um, so a wall of Chinese American menus that date back to the uh, early 1900s all the way to today. Um, and of course, as a food and drink museum, uh, we have to have a place where visitors can sit down and uh, literally digest the information they have just figuratively <laughs> digested. Um, so at our culinary studio, uh, everybody who purchases a ticket gets to sit down uh, at our demo kitchen uh, with our fantastic uh, culinary team uh, who will demo a dish, um, explain a little bit about Chinese techniques, um, and then feed people. And we get those recipes that we serve at the culinary studio from uh, Chinese American chefs from around the country. Um, so it's a way to um, engage not only our visitors, but also the culinary community as well, which is really important to us. Do you have anything to and add? Th that, it, it, the exhibit is open now, right? It opened. Yes. Um, so Chow uh, is open now. It's closing at the end of March this year. So March 31st, 2019. Uh, we are open Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays from 12 noon to 6 p.m. And John, do you want to tell us so if, if Chow is closing at the end of March, people need to uh, uh, get it on our calendars and get out to Brooklyn soon. So what is happening after March and coming up the rest of the year at the museum? So we're going to take the month of April to take down the exhibition and kind of reconfigure the space a little bit. We're going to be opening up a future exhibition um, in the fall or winter of uh, you know this coming year. But in the meantime, we are going to be sort of relaunching uh, or launching to this new sort of month-long programming series. Well where you know, we'll take a given topic such as fermentation and do this sort of deep dive into it with uh, hopefully some workshops and every week a different presenter um, or somebody to come and speak about these topics. So it should be really great. So the mu museum's not gonna close. There'll just be, there won't be a permanent um, uh, featured exhibit. There'll be a revolving set of, of new programming. Right, so uh, we'll have some of our uh, larger uh, collection items, probably also the chickens on display, um, but we'll be, our space in Brooklyn will be primarily a programming space. And the idea really is to take our approach to creating an exhibition and really have that on display in these program series, right? So taking those pillars you discussed at the beginning of the podcast and sort of laying bare um, you know, how we think about those in terms of each of these month-long topics, which will then culminate in a dinner. Great. And so that's kind of, that slate's going to get announced kind of in April? Yes, hopefully soon. Yep. Great. All right. After the break, Catherine and John are going to each reveal a Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? 
From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Catherine, what's your Julia moment? Um, Well, I sort of came to Julia when I was in my uh, early to mid-20s. That's really when I've always loved to eat, but that's when I sort of got into food and started thinking about it um, as more uh, than just something I like to eat or cook or do. Um, And at that time, I was going through some major life transitions, and I really was struck by um, Julia's attitudes around courage and around failure and um, it helped me I think to become a better cook to have courage in the kitchen and to just just try and to know that even if I had messed up it probably wouldn't be that bad it was usually still edible Um, but also taking that into my everyday life right to to have courage to not be so afraid of failure to be able to sort of move forward um, passionately and and just excitedly well, yes, I think Julia is is sort of the ultimate kind of underdog who showed courage, and so I think that's a great one. Absolutely, John. What's yours? Yeah, mine's a little bit in a similar vein. I'm not <laughs> totally piggybacking off of you, Catherine, but um, before getting into museum curation and sort of uh, this nonprofit world, I was a cook here at a couple restaurants in New York City. And every time I jump or, you know, go to a different restaurant, I'd always hear, you know, about this potential test, you know, where the chef or the sous chef or whoever's um, interviewing you asks you to prepare an omelet for them as that's sort of the, you know, ultimate culinary test of any cook. And that caused me to kind of go on this internet searching uh, frenzy to go look at videos, you know, about how to make the best French omelet, um, you know, the differences between that one and the American ones. And lo and behold, I come across Julia's one. And... You know, it was always, I don't know, the idea of cooking an omelet, as simple as it is, was always terrifying to me because there was always this sort of talk about, uh, you know, the perfection and technique required in it. And just seeing Julia take such a sort of lackadaisical and much more relaxed approach, you know, and sort of embracing this possibility of failure was really great to me and just helped ease my mind going into something that in my mind I'd really made out to be almost impossible. And she just made it a lot more approachable. So it was uh, really great to, you know, start rethinking that way in, uh, in my culinary career it was good. No, that's a great one, too. And I think I'd always been taught a certain way to make an omelet. And then I realized through watching Julia later or watching her again, really, I was like, wait, that's not the same way. And then I realized every French chef has their own 100 percent correct way to make an omelet. And that, I think, is also freeing when you realize, well, actually, there are many appropriate techniques and there's not just one, even though most chefs will tell you there is just one. Yep, exactly. So Julia has given us courage to um, fail when making omelets and to also understand that there might be more than one way to, to uh, crack an make egg. the omelet. Yeah. <laughs> well, Catherine, John, thank you so much for joining us and filling us in about the latest at MOFAD and taking us all the way back in time. I think that was just 7,500 BCE. And then flash forward to um, right through industrial... Um, through industrialization of food on the history of the chicken. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. This was great. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. So if you're enjoying the podcast, do follow the Foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, 
at Julia, I can't say Julia today, mm-hmm. at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My ha- Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. And we're going to offer after the program that as uh, MOFAD ramps up their programming later in the year, we'll make sure to share that with you. If you want to learn more about or better yet, visit MOFAD before um, the end of March to see the Chow exhibit, you can go to MOFAD.org. It's M-O-F as in Frank, A-D.org. And you can follow them on social too. It's at MOFAD on Instagram and Twitter and at MOFAD Info on Facebook. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. And thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New Friend Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And we're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Look for us wherever you listen to your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening. <laughs>